All right. Good morning, friends. My name is Hunter. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. We'll go ahead and dismiss Kid City to their classroom. So that's kindergarten through fifth grade. And uh, as they uh, make their way out, or they already have, it looks like, uh, can we put our hands together for our children's workers and thank God for them watching over our kiddos? They are not just babysitting. They are making disciples. Come on. In Jesus' name, amen. We believe it by faith, uh, whether or not it's true. No, I'm just kidding. They're doing a great job. Grateful for our, our volunteers and our kids' workers. Uh, if you're joining us for the very first time this morning, uh, you're in for a treat. We're starting a brand new sermon series today called The Story of God, the story of God. And uh, this particular sermon series is going to be about the book of Genesis, which is the very first book in your Bible. So if you brought a Bible, a copy of God's word with you this morning, you can go ahead and meet me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, while we won't do a study of the book of Genesis in its entirety, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, we are going to kind of cull out what we believe to be the top 10 episodes in the book of Genesis. And we hope that by studying these stories, we'll see how our story connects with God's story. Uh, it's our hope that we're able to do this story of God kind of format with other books of the Bible in the future. Uh, the story of God, Ruth episodes, the story of God, Ecclesiastes episodes, that sort of thing. Um, so thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, over the course of the next six months, we'll dip in and out of this series uh, with other ones as well to hopefully show uh, how this story connects with the story of God in the other 65 books of the Bible. Uh, and so if you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, the title of my message this morning is, Whose Story Will You Believe? Whose Story Will You Believe? Scottish philosopher Alistair McIntyre says in his landmark tome, After Virtue, that story has formative power upon human beings. He says human beings are essentially storytelling animals. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? That's a short quote, but it packs a punch, so I'll, I'll read it again. Uh, human beings are essentially storytelling animals. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And for Christians, there is perhaps no story more ripe with generative power and explanatory possibility than the first three chapters of the Bible. In fact, it's been argued that the first three chapters of the Bible contain the whole Bible in a single story. Uh, some even say that Genesis 1 through 3 is the whole Bible and the rest is just commentary. Uh, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but I would add that if we only had the first three chapters in our Bible, and if we only had the last three chapters in our Bible, we would be okay, <laughs> right? Uh, knowing how the story begins and knowing how the story ends is maybe the most important part. However, if we did not have the first three chapters of our Bible, Genesis 1 through 3, and if we lack the last three chapters of our Bible, Revelation 20 through 22, we would be in deep, deep trouble, confusion, and dare I say, despair. Luckily for you this morning, I have the easy task of summarizing the first three chapters of Genesis, aka, AKA the whole Bible, in a single sermon. Uh, so thanks for nothing, teaching team. Uh, appreciate it a lot. Josh and Emmanuel, uh, please pray for me and pray for yourselves uh, that we can all stay together on this sermon safari this morning. 
Uh, That's right, we're entering into the wild, wild jungles of God's garden. Uh, We will see stars, stewards, and serpents, oh my. And uh, I don't want any of you getting lost today. So to help us stay on track, I have put together a handy dandy map that will hopefully serve as a guide rail to our conversation this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Maybe you wanna take a photo of this with your phone. Uh, If you're lost on the way, just refer to the map. You'll get a little, you are here star next to where we are in the course of the sermon, and hopefully we can all make our ways uh, safely back home. Our route through the Garden of Eden will include four scenes, three chapters, two questions, and one big idea. Four scenes, three chapters, two questions, and one big idea. Everybody ready? All right, cheers to that. Let's do it. Scene one the star speaker. Genesis chapter one, verses one through five reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, tohu vavohu. Uh, This phrase kind of brings to mind the the picture of a teenager's bedroom. Uh, It's unordered chaos, right? (laughs) It's unordered. Uh, It's not that nothing exists. It's that there's no order and there's no uh, domain there that has been constructed. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Over the course of six days, God, the creator God, fashions heaven and earth, day and night, sea and sky, plants and animals, sun and moon, male and female, and all of these things he calls good. At the end of these six days, before he rests on the seventh, he uh, steps back from his proverbial paint palette and easel and looks at the landscape that he has made. He surveys his creative canvas and says, hey, this is good, in fact, This is very good. Not just good in the sense that it is aesthetically pleasing or morally commendable, but good in the sense that it is capable of producing and sustaining life. The world God has made is not dull or unremarkable. No, it is bursting with color, teeming with creative possibility, infused with generative capacity. And the world God has made is good because God is good. The world God has made is good because God in and of himself is first and foremost life and the source of life. As John the apostle would say in the prologue to his first chapter of his own story, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. This God, the God of life, simply had to speak and stars were born. For him, there is no qualitative difference between his words and his works. For God to speak is for God to act. A magician may say, watch this and pull a rabbit out of a hat. A Steph Curry may say, bet, shoot a three, and he makes it. Drake may spit a bar on a verse and it goes triple platinum on the radio, but only for the star speaking God can words become worlds. 
Only Yahweh Elohim speaks and stars are made. Only God in the Old Testament is reserved as the subject for the verb create. I struggle to keep my word. I struggle to accomplish my goals. I have a hard time, like many of you, seeing my visions become reality, but not God. For God, an articulation is an achievement. A promise is fulfillment. Because the second God starts to speak is the second that the work has already been made complete. And the degree to which creation conforms to God's goodness, his character, his likeness, as it does in Genesis, is the same degree to which it may be called good. Very, very good. Now, whether or not God created the world in a literal six days, I don't think the original writer or the original hearers would have had much interest in (laughs) Us modern readers, influenced as we are by the Enlightenment, come to this Genesis story with all sorts of presuppositions and beliefs, and we want to make the Bible bend uh, to our interests and our objectives. Uh, We want to contort it to answer our questions. But really, the first chapter of the Bible is not just about origins, it's about identity. Every culture has a creation account. And every culture considers some questions more important than others when it begins to describe how the world was made. So when us modern listeners come to this ancient poetic story of creation, searching for evidence of a Big Bang theory on one side, or maybe a literal six-day, 24-hour creation, young earth approach, not only do we contort the text, we colonize it. Because we are asking all sorts of questions that the first listeners in the first literature had no interest in addressing. Genesis 1, my friends, is not a story of origins primarily. It is mainly a story of authorship. It's not about a how, it's more about a who. A star-speaking God, not a science textbook. Scene 2, statues and stewards. We doing good this morning? All right. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles right now, but believe it or not, this is actually the second account of humanity being made in Genesis. Uh, We skipped over it, but equally important for our purposes today is Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, which reads, "Then uh, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created 
him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We uh, don't have time to detail all the differences and discrepancies between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 this morning, but uh, suffice to say, these accounts are a little different. Uh, Much like the four gospels in the New Testament, these two stories provide a panoramic perspective on what it meant for God to make image bearers. Uh, These two chapters, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, don't disagree with one another, they just differ. It's almost as if one describes the construction of a home while the other depicts the designing of a home. It's very different to build an architectural structure than it is to paint the walls and fill in the furniture. Two perspectives, one picture. While some things are unclear in Genesis and leave our imaginations wanting more, it is surprising just how clear the Genesis account is about what a human being is and what a human being is not. Number one, humans are not God. They are the image of God. Old Testament scholar and professor John Walton says, in the ancient world, the image of God and the, uh, uh, the image of God did the God's work on the earth. And in the ancient world, only kings were worthy of bearing God's image. Uh, consequently, kings would oftentimes set up statues, uh, which were their image in the earth. And they would set them up as like landmarks around their region, around their country. It'd be like if we had one on the uh, Canadian border and the Mexico border and the Atlantic and the Pacific. Uh, This is actually what Saul did in 1 Samuel 15, if you remember that story from a few weeks ago, that he made a statue for himself. He was trying to be like the other nations. Yet in the biblical drama, the process of image bearing is democratized. Not just kings, but all citizens in the one true king's kingdom are inherently worthy and deserving of dignity, value, and respect. Because all humans, regardless of gender, race, class, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, physical or mental capacities, or even the stain of sin, in some way mimic and mirror their maker. Secondly, humans are stewards, not tyrants. The created order is good and life-giving, which implies that the number one job of all humans is to make more life. The task of dominion does not allow for domination. We are not to exploit and abuse God's good green earth. Rather, we are to love and care and tend and nurture for the world that God has given us so that it could reach the highest capacity of its creative potential. Thirdly, as those endowed with God's divine image, men and women are both equally human. Can I get an amen from the sisters? And in some sense, the image of God is actually lacking in humanity whenever one or the other gender is missing from the equation. Whenever both beings are not ruling and reigning as God's co-ambassadors in the earth, all kinds of disorder and domineering and disaster take place. Said more clearly, females are not second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Adam was made first, yes, but Eve is called the mother of all living beings. Fourth, we are creatures in community. Humans are to be fruitful and multiply through marriage and procreation, yes. 
But in verse 18 of chapter two, Yahweh says, it is not good for the man to be alone. This is not just a comment about copulation. This is a call to community and companionship. As Eugene Peterson says so well, we are not ourselves by ourselves. To all the single ladies and fellas, I pray that the local church is a hospital where the ache of loneliness is not infected, but healed through community. I pray that the local church is a place where the new family of God dignifies singleness and doesn't denigrate it as a second-class status in God's economy. Fifth, finally, and perhaps most unpopularly, the Bible uses categories which our secular culture has all but denied. Man, woman, male, female, husband, wife, father, mother. In the biblical story, these are not labels to debate, but identities to cherish. Is the foundational building blocks of a good and life-giving society. Now, please look, I, <laughs> if you know me, I have zero interest in starting a culture war this morning. Uh, I also don't want to unnecessarily tick people off before brunch and mimosas. <laughs> but the issues of maleness and femaleness, marriage and monogamy are way too complex, sensitive and important for me to nuance in a single sermon where I'm already trying to summarize the whole Bible. So please know that at Providence Bible Church, we take God's word very seriously. And we also take the way God's word has been weaponized to hurt people on the margins very seriously. We have been, are, and by God's grace, will continue to be a place of love and welcome and acceptance to all people from all backgrounds. But in an effort to hear the whole story of God, Old Testament and New Testament, please don't take my words for it as a white cisgendered married man, but listen instead to the words of an oppressed Jewish unmarried man from Palestine 2,000 years ago. Words in red. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. If these words or what I've had to say has triggered you or offended you, please know that is not my intent. And if you're able, I would love to have a conversation with you after the service. Scene three, the slithering serpent. Genesis chapter three, verses one through 13 is a long passage, but it's an important one. Please turn there in your Bibles with me if you are able. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Not exactly what God said, <laughs> lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look how the serpent is trying to withhold from Adam and Eve what they already possess. If you are in the image of God, we were just made in the image of God. Why are we trying to be like God? He's a serpent with the same tricks he does over and over again. Fast forward to Luke 4, Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Two seconds after he has just been baptized and declared, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. And the serpent says, if you are the son of God. He was just baptized as the son of God. And yet he wants to hold out what we already have. Because last time I checked, we have been made kings and priests of our God. And we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, Those who trust in the Lord lack no good thing. Great is his faithfulness unto us. Our Lord will provide everything that we need. We lack no good thing in Jesus' name. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Come on, Adam, what you doing, bro? (laughs) Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Uh, We don't know for sure what kind of tree they ate the fruit from. A lot of people think it's like an apple tree, but... They take the fruit and then they make fig leaves. So maybe it was a fig tree. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a Bible scholar, but I just think that's, that's interesting. Maybe that's what it was. We don't know for sure. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam's gaslighting, man, and mansplaining all at the same time. Lord have mercy. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This uh, passage, Genesis 3, could be a whole sermon in and of itself, obviously. Uh, But in this third scene, in this third chapter, if you're following along with our handy-dandy map today, I want to hone in on two important questions that God asked to Adam. Number one, where are you? And number two, who told you that you were naked? Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? First, where are you? Uh, About two years ago now, Jason Jans and I uh, went through a book called The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson. That was part of my training and mentoring program at Denver Seminary. Uh, This book was incredibly instrumental in helping me come to term with my own felt sense of shame, inadequacy, insecurity, and unworthiness. In it, Dr. Thompson, a psychiatrist, outlines how shame literally rewires our brains at a neurobiological level. Shame, he says, makes us suspicious and avoidant of healthy, secure attachments. Shame disrupts and dysregulates the sympathetic nervous system. Shame moves us to a state of isolation and paralysis. And perhaps most insidious of all, shame creates a negative reinforcing feedback loop, which says not only did you do bad, you are bad. 
The algorithm of shame deals not just in activity, but in identity. In a theological sense, shame is separation. It's not just the breaking of a rule, but as we see in Genesis 3, it is the rupture of a relationship. First with God, then with ourselves. And before we know it, we're making all sorts of fig leaves to keep us separated from other people around us. The solution to rewiring shame in our brains and in our souls is, of course, relationships. But relationships are scary because really the only way we heal shame is through embodied vulnerability, relational safety, and through courageous decisions to expose the sin in our life directly before a loving community and a loving God, naked and completely unashamed. When we don't do this though, like Adam and Eve, we run, we hide, we cast blame, and we have to answer the question, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? I wonder how you hear these questions from your creator God this morning. Do you hear these questions as loving invitations to intimacy? Do you hear them as your father in heaven uh, crying out and calling to you to come back and repair that which has been ruptured? Or do you hear them in a harsh tone of condemnation and judgment that makes you want to run for your life? For almost every sermon I preach, I do my best to start with the original text. I do my best to go back to the languages the Bible was written in and recover what the original authors meant, uh, because that's the best way for us to make meaning out of what the Bible says. I was, I was working through this text this week. I was struck by an insight that stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, it was an aha moment if I've ever had one. Uh, before I show it to you though, I need to ask, uh, do any of you remember what a homophone is? Homophone, hooked on phonics. Yeah, anybody wanna gender or uh, render a uh, definition? Gina, the school teacher, please, you got it, let's go. Incredible. Thank you, Gina Livingston. Our public school system is not failing our children. Thank you, God. Uh, that's right. Exactly. If you didn't hear Gina, these are words that uh, are spelled differently but sound the same. I did my best in addition to plain and plain um, to find some comparisons in Spanish, but in English, maybe uh, some ones that make sense are uh, deer, like the animal, and then like deer, you know, you're writing a letter to a loved one. Uh, another one is whole and whole. Uh, Jason Jans has a great story about getting this confused in the middle of a sermon. Uh, so if you want to ask him about it, he would love it. He would love to talk with you about it. Uh, it's a great, great story. Uh, another one is week and week, like week, like a seven-day unit of time, and then week when we don't feel strong. Weather, weather, principle, principle, you get it. Right. Why am I telling you this? Here's the thing. I think I found a homophone in Genesis chapter 3. That's right. It's this word, ahava and ahava. Now, you may not read Hebrew, but you don't have to uh, know that language well at all to see that these words are very, very similar looking on the top of the screen, uh, but they're spelled slightly differently. Um, this first word is the word for love, uh, and it uh, is, uh, uh, yeah, the word for love. And then the second word is uh, the word for uh, to hide. It's the first person singular verb for to hide, and that's the word that Adam uses in Genesis chapter three. 
Now, why on earth am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because in Genesis chapter three, God walks toward Adam, ask him in loving relationship, where are you? And Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I, ahava, I hid myself. This statement got me thinking about another verse, much later in the story of God in 1 John chapter 4, where it says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. The good news for us this morning is what Adam could have only guessed was true. Our God, our creator God, is a God not of Ahava, but of Ahava. He is not a God that we need to hide from. This is a God that we can run to because in him, he has cast out all fear, all shame, all insecurity, all brokenness and sin so that in him, we can go running and hiding all right, but we're gonna run and hide in God. Our God, the creator God is a God, not of fear, but of love. And he proves this to us no more than in scene number four, the suffering savior. Adam and Eve were rightly punished for their disobedience and failure to obey. But they also received from God's hand a promise and a provision for their sins. Genesis chapter three, verse 15 records what theologians call the first gospel long before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John were ever written, the good news of Christ Jesus was proclaimed in the story of Genesis to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a promise from Yahweh God to his creation. Just a few seconds after they have disobeyed and fallen away, his heart of love is overwhelmed toward his creation and his creators. And he lets them know that one day, rather than man trying to become God, God will become man. He will take on flesh, skin and bone, and move into the neighborhood. He will live the life that we should have lived. He will die the death that we deserve on our behalf, in our place, and and by his death, he would crush the head of that ancient serpent, the devil, not by grasping fruit from a tree, but by climbing up on a tree in our place. Though there is nothing desirable in him, as Isaiah says, he would become for us all the wisdom we would ever need. Just as God shed blood by making animal skins to cover Adam and Eve in the garden, so too the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would become the perfect, spotless, permanent sacrifice for you and for me. So that now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he doesn't see our shame, he doesn't see a separation, he says nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I want to encourage you today, brother or sister, whether you find yourself uh, far away running away from God or you feel as if you're at his feet worshiping this morning, God is inviting you in to his story. He's inviting you in to loving relationship with himself. So now, whenever sin or temptation, or suffering, or shame comes knocking on your door, you can let Jesus answer. You can run and hide inside of God. Why? Because when Jesus died, you died. Woo! Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
a literal, spatial, existential reality that is truer than life itself. If you are in Christ, you are in God, my friends. And just like me, your hurt can find a home. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just an idea. The big idea of this entire message is that the story you believe will shape the life you lead. The story you believe will shape the life you lead. Whose story are you believing today, my friends? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you you're not enough? Who told you to live in fear and shame? Perfect love cast out all fear and all shame and all separation in Jesus's name. The serpent no longer has a right to shape your story. Only God does. The enemy doesn't get to dictate your narrative. God does. Your past does not determine your future. God does. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. My friends, the story you believe will shape the life you lead. Believe in Jesus today. The music team can make their way to the front and the prayer team will be available down front as well as we close. They would uh, love to pray with you for anything you need. And uh, again, if anything I said this morning was um, offensive, that was not my intent. Uh, I would love to talk with you more about all of these topics. I wanted to give you a few recommended reading resources. However, if you're less interested in a dialogue and you just wanna do some more research on your own, um, there are four books that I would highly, highly commend to you uh, when it comes to the topic of creation and science. So if you do it better than John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, it's a very accessible and a great read if you're curious and studying the creation account in its original historical context. If you'd like to explore the historic Orthodox Christian view of same-sex attraction, uh, People to Be Loved by our good friend Preston Sprinkle is a terrific place to start. Um, and the topic of transgender identity and gender dysphoria is a highly complex and nuanced one, uh, but embodied by Preston Sprinkle as well is another resource uh, we would commend. We're actually going through it right now in Light and Heat, uh, one of our morning uh, basement Bible study groups for CG leaders at this church. And then last but not least, I would highly commend The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson as another great resource for all people interested in cultivating deeper connection with God, ourselves, and one another. Amen? All right. Would you please stand with me as we move into worship together this morning? Father God, we come before you today thanking you, God, for your goodness. We thank you that because you are good, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above with whom there is no variation or change due to shadow or shifting lights. Uh, we thank you, God, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you, God, that in our nakedness, in our shame, in our vulnerability, we can find a new place to hide. We can find a new place to, to run home into the arms of a father who will never abandon us, who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. But instead, we can receive the love of God poured out into our hearts so that we release the Abba cry that says, uh, my father, I love you. 
thank you for saving me, that I'm no longer a slave to fear, but instead I'm a child of the most high King. And so Father God, we look to you now knowing that uh, not only are you good, but you are beautiful, God. Uh, You do good things. You make beautiful things. And from uh, Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to the end, we look to you as the Alpha, the Omega, as the chief architect and author of our story, God. And we say, God, have your way in our lives. Have your way in our church, Lord. We don't know what the future holds, God, but we know that you will be faithful tomorrow as you were faithful yesterday today and forever. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that wherever we are in the room this morning, we would take the promise of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 with great seriousness, that what the enemy intended for evil, God will use for good and for the saving of many lives. So Lord, we thank you that you make beautiful things out of brokenness, that you bring life out of death, that you bring resurrection out of the cross. And Lord, we look to you and we trust you this morning to have your way in our lives and in our church. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen Amen. and amen. Let's respond.